service. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Rodney Alcala, a.k.a. the dating game killer, are insane. He was a depraved serial killer who eluded authorities for years. He hid his true identity behind charm and persuasion. He worked as a summer camp counselor while on the lam for the savage assault of an eight-year-old girl, an eight-year-old. He convinced his parole officer to let him take a vacation to the other side of the country, where he proceeded to commit another of his many murders. While New Yorkers were watching their backs for the son of Sam in the summer of 77, Rodney Alcala killed again. It's widely believed that he murdered dozens of women, perhaps even more than 100, even though he had less than 10 convictions. And did Rodney Alcala make great films? Hell no. But his appearance on the popular ABC show The Dating Game in 1978, which he made in the midst of his killing spree, is one of the most bizarre and creepy moments in Hollywood history. Kind of like that clip I played for you at the top of the show. That wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of J.W. Myers performing I'm Tired in 1904. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from William Wyler's Funny Girl. And why would I play you that specific slice of hello gorgeous cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on September 25th, 1968. And that was the day authorities suspect Rodney Alcala first followed through on his darkest instincts and abducted a girl on her way to school and brutally assaulted her. An event that would kick off a decade of rape, murder, and extreme personality disorders in full effect. On this episode, a depraved serial killer, charm and persuasion, creepy Hollywood history, and the depraved dating game killer, Rodney Alcala. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season four, Hollywoodland. Conley sat anxiously in the courtroom. Her fingers massaged the straw handbag in her lap. Her mind raced, her heart beat fast. This was taking way too long. Where was he, and when would they bring him in? She just wanted to see his face, look into his eyes. She wanted that monster to feel her pain, to know that every minute of every day was now a living hell, a hell that he created. Just like that, snap of a finger quicker than God had created the whole entire earth, but he wasn't God. He didn't give her anything. All he did was take away. Marianne's daughter, Robin Samso, was found the previous summer in July of 1979 by a member of a forest crew in the foothills above the Sierra Madre. Not her body, though. 
her remains, bones, her skull in a ravine, her lower teeth fractured, her left foot and parts of her hands missing, her tennis shoe in a bush, a kitchen knife stained with blood hidden in the leaves. Robin was only 12 years old, which coincidentally was the number of days she'd been missing. She was last seen on June 20th when she borrowed a friend's bike to go to a nearby ballet studio where she took lessons and answered phones. That same friend remembered an uncomfortable encounter earlier in the day on Huntington Beach when a curly-haired man stopped them both and asked if he could take their photograph. He touched Robin's leg with his hand. He gave off serious creep vibes. And now, in Orange County Superior Court, a curly-haired man matching the description of the creepy man from that day on Huntington Beach was being led to the defendant's chair. Marianne Conley took a deep breath. She knew Rodney Alcala was the one, the curly-haired man who had approached her daughter, Robin, in June. But he didn't just take Robin's photo or just touch her leg, as creepy as that was. He marked Robin as his prey the moment he saw her, and then he hunted her down brutalized her. Fucking animal. Twelve years old. The pain was unbearable. Marianne wanted it to end. All of it. Not just her pain. His life. The solution was easy. What goes around comes around. He was right there. Not even twenty feet away from her. She unlatched her straw handbag and casually put her hand inside. She felt the twenty-five caliber pistol. Getting it inside the courtroom was a cinch. It was 1980. California was golden and mellow. There were no metal detectors to walk through. No security guard was about to pat down a grieving mother who could barely stand on her own two shaking feet. She wrapped her palm tightly around the pistol's handle. Her finger caressed the trigger. It would be so easy. She wouldn't even have to say anything. Just stand up, pull the gun out, and let the handbag fall to the floor, aim it at his fucking mop of curly hair, shatter his teeth like he shattered Robin's, blow his head right off his goddamn body, reduce his face to blood and bone with one shot. Rodney Alcala had no way of knowing that the mother of his latest victim was packing heat. And even if he did know, it wouldn't have fazed him. Because he knew she wouldn't go through with it, she'd never pull the trigger. Not because of cold feet, because he was smarter than she was. He was smarter than every single person in that courtroom, always one step ahead. IQ like Einstein, and persuasive. He could talk anyone into or out of anything. He persuaded NYU that his name was John Berger, even though he had no proof that that was remotely true. He persuaded a summer camp in New Hampshire to hire him as a counselor, even though at the time he was on the FBI's most wanted list for the savage rape and attempted murder of an eight-year-old girl in Los Angeles. He persuaded the LA Times to give him a job as a typesetter, even though he had secretly killed numerous women after serving two stints in jail. So naturally, he would have no problem persuading the mother of the 12-year-old girl he just murdered to not only spare his life, but to forgive him. He was the real victim here. It would be easy, just as easy as it was to persuade a major television network to allow him, Rodney Alcala, a sociopath, to participate as a contestant on a nationally syndicated show in the middle of a serial killing spree. For Jed Mills, it was easy money. 400 bucks to play the role of eligible bachelor. Bachelor number two, that is. It wasn't happy days, hell, it wasn't even the love boat, but to an actor looking for an honest day's work, you could do a lot worse than the dating game. He was basically getting paid to flirt. 
and the bachelorette on the other side of the partition would ask him a question. He just had to answer as provocatively as possible. This was 1978, after all. Provocative was practically a comedy genre in and of itself then. And if you could get the audience to laugh, then she would laugh too. And that was the way to the girl's heart. Not any of this macho bullshit. Laughter. Jed might even get lucky. Maybe the bachelorette would pick him out of the lineup. He had a one in three chance after all, and that would mean a date on ABC's dime on top of the $400 fee, and then maybe he'd get lucky for real and get laid. So Jed nursed a soda in the green room and sized up his competition while they waited for their call time. Bachelor number three had a cue ball for a head and a lime green suit that looked like the color of dog's puke after the dog ate a bunch of grass. Guy clearly wasn't much of a threat. Bachelor number one, on the other hand, that guy was handsome. Jed had to admit, brown polyester suit and white butterfly collar, shirt unbuttoned halfway down his chest, shoulder-length brown hair throwing off some serious warm baby vibes. Chicks dug that shit, all of it, especially the hair, but there was something about that guy that didn't sit right with Jed. Like putting forth this image of charisma and desire required a lot of energy, and bad energy. He smiled a lot, like a lot, a lot, too much, so much that it seemed fake, hollow, big dumb fucking grin that hovered below equally dumb eyes. Not that Jed got to look into those eyes too much. Bachelor number one avoided eye contact, directed his gaze at the floor, and Jed wasn't buying it. Too much effort to appear suave. Guy was a standard issue creep. Was probably into the kinky shit behind closed doors too, la free say chic, boogie oogie oogie. Jed tried to make small talk in order to cut what he perceived as tension in the green room. He wondered how each of them would fare out there on stage in the spotlight. Bachelor number one took it as a challenge. He raised his bowed head from the floor and looked directly at Jed. And that smile, so strained, it was now sinister. Those eyes, they were now not dumb, not doughy, not pretty, cold and calculated. The eyes of a winner, no matter the cost. Bachelor number one held his gaze on Jed and then he broke his silence with five words delivered with confidence. I always get my girl. Hollywood wasn't all that far from Phoenix on a map, but to Cheryl Bradshaw, it could have been a different universe altogether. The stars weren't just in the sky out here, they were everywhere. Vivian Lee, Jack Lemmon, Barbara Streisand, Orson Welles, you name it. Their names were permanently etched into the sidewalk of Hollywood Boulevard. Their likeness molded in wax at Madame Tussauds. And their remains tucked away for an eternal slumber at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. The legacy of Hollywood endured in a way that was awe-inspiring. Cheryl Bradshaw's time in Hollywood, however, wasn't so permanent, but it did hold its share of opportunity. Cheryl was a humble drama teacher from Arizona. She didn't have any delusions about her name winding up in a star on that fabled walk of fame. Perhaps one of her students would go on to a career in the limelight one of these days. For a brief moment, however, she would bask in her own 15 minutes of fame as the bachelorette on The Dating Game. Her face would be on millions of television screens all across the country. Crazy. If she was lucky, she'd get a hot date as a cherry on top. It was September of 1978, and the dating game was a popular game show on ABC for 13 years running. 
It was the first show to be developed and sold by Chuck Barris, the game show guru behind the gong show whose dangerous mind led him to write a number of hit songs and may or may not have led him to becoming an assassin for the CIA, but that's another story for an entirely different episode. But back to what we were talking about. Unlike the life of its developer, Chuck Barris, the premise of the dating game was simple. One female or male contestant posed questions to three members of the opposite sex sight unseen. The questions were often suggestive, especially in the swinging 1970s, when the show's producers were encouraged to push the innuendo as close to the edge as possible. Based on the answers of the three eligible bachelors or bachelorettes, the contestant would choose a winner to take on a dream date to some exotic destination, with an ABC chaperone, of course. A pre-fame Steve Martin appeared not once but twice as one of the three bachelors. Three bachelors literally fought on set for the chance to catch a date with the pre-Charlie's Angels, Farrah Fawcett. And Arnold Schwarzenegger famously appeared on the show looking for love back when he was merely Mr. Olympia. Tonight, however, there were no soon-to-be-famous bachelors on the dating game set. Soon-to-be-infamous, now, that was another story. Cheryl basked in the show business of it all. The groovy set with its bubbly text and flowers that looked more like squashed amoebas on the partitions. The lights, the big cameras, the studio audience. Jim Lang, the host with the voice of a DJ, they called the guys like him pukers because of the way they talked. The words just erupted from their throats like shrapnel from a cannon. Hey everybody, welcome back. It was different than what she taught back home, projecting your voice on stage and all that. This was projecting Hollywood style as was that puffy shirt and bow tie and oversized glasses he wore, and the kiss he gave Cheryl right on the lips when he introduced her to the crowd. Not everything about Hollywood was a fairy tale. Some of it was just downright uncomfortable. Bachelor number one is a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the darkroom at the age of 13, fully developed. The crowd moaned in delight at the double entendre. Between takes, you might find him skydiving or motorcycling. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. If Alcala noticed that Jim Lang pronounced his name incorrectly on national television, he didn't make it known. As the audience applause died down, Cheryl cleared her throat and looked at the questions on the card in her hand. She knew how to perform. She could hold her own. The cameras didn't make her nervous. Neither did the studio audience. She had to lay it on thick, enunciate every syllable, speak clearly but dramatically make all three of the bachelors yearn to be with her with every fiber of their being. She wanted to make her appearance truly memorable. Bachelor number one, she began. What's your best time? Rodney Alcala smiled, that same smile Jed Mills had seen back in the green room. The one that gave him the heebie-jeebies, the one that looked forced, so pleasant it was painful. The best time is at night, Alcala answered. That's the only time there is, nighttime is when it really gets good. On July 13th and 14th, 1977, nighttime wasn't the best time in New York City. It was the only time. The now infamous blackout brought an already crippled city to its knees. It was hot, temperatures flirted with triple digits. The smell of curdled trash left abandoned on street corners due to a sanitation strike was rank in the air. All the things that nighttime brings came out of the shadows. Thieves, muggers, pyros, looters, that fucking creep son of Sam haunting the streets with his 44 caliber. When the power finally came back on, things were missing. Everything from small turntables to large appliances had been stolen from stores all across the city. 
50 brand new Pontiacs disappeared from a dealership in the Bronx. And Ellen Hover, a 23-year-old socialite who lived in an apartment on 3rd Avenue, had vanished. Ellen Hover was a beautiful, aspiring orchestra conductor. Her father once owned the popular Hollywood nightclub, Ciro's, and she counted both Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin as godfathers. Her family and friends panicked when she disappeared. Posters went up all over Midtown. They read, missing after blackout, reward, Ellen Hover, 23, long brown hair, 106 pounds, pinstripe t-shirt, blue jeans, with a phone number to call for tips. They received very few tips. Ellen's mother and stepfather hired a private detective. The only real lead was that Ellen had left her apartment that day to meet up with a photographer who was going to take pictures of her. The photographer's name, John Berger, was written on her calendar for the day she disappeared. At the time, no one knew that Rodney Alcala was using the alias John Berger. 11 months later, when Ellen Hover's bones were finally discovered an hour outside the city in Westchester County on the Rockefeller estate of all places, detectives were beginning to put the pieces together. They figured out that John Berger and Rodney Alcala were one and the same. They called Alcala down to the station for questioning. He told them that yes, he had spent the day with Ellen on July 15, 1977, but that at the end of the day, he dropped her off at the apartment and never saw her again. There were no cracks in his story. He was thoroughly convincing, persuasive. Plus, the cops didn't have any evidence to hold him any longer. They let Alcala go. It would be more than 30 years later before Ellen Hover's family got proper closure for her murder. The craziest thing is, they weren't the only family. There were more. So many more. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Ellen Hover wasn't Rodney Alcala's only victim. There were others. Cornelia Crilly, Jill Barcombe, Georgia Wickstead, Charlotte Lamb, Jill Parento, Robin Samso. And even before all those others, there was Tali Shapiro. In September of 1968, Tali Shapiro and her family temporarily called the Chateau Marmont West Hollywood home, having recently lost their own house to a fire. At just eight years old, Tali was an independent second grader. She walked herself down Sunset Boulevard to school each day. But September 25th wasn't just another day. That was the day a car pulled up alongside the curb and the window rolled down. Rodney Alcala, then 25 years old, sat in the driver's seat. Tali had never seen him before. Alcala asked her if she wanted a ride. Tali knew stranger danger. Her parents taught her well. She knew she shouldn't get in. But Alcala was persuasive. He said he wasn't actually a stranger. He knew her parents. It was all right. Tali opened the passenger door and stepped inside. A bystander watched the whole interaction from across the street and thought it looked strange. He tailed the car until it reached a nearby apartment. Alcala walked Tali inside and the man called the police. Alcala stalled when LAPD began banging on the door. At first, he didn't say anything more banging. Alcala responded that he was, he was in the shower. The cops told him to open up or they'd break down the door. More banging, more stalling. When the police finally kicked Alcala's door in, he was long gone, out the back door. But they couldn't miss Tali Shapiro. She was on the floor, naked, in a pool of her own blood, sexually assaulted and viciously beaten with a steel bar and just eight years old. 
One of the LAPD officers on the scene said what he witnessed that day was just as brutal, if not more than the horrors he'd seen during his tour in Vietnam. Incredibly, Rodney Alcala eluded capture for nearly three years despite committing murder and despite landing a spot on the FBI's most wanted list. In 1971, he strangled TWA flight attendant Cornelia Crilly to death with her own stockings in her Upper East Side apartment. Perhaps more incredible, however, was that he wasn't eventually nabbed by federal agents or a good Samaritan adult. He was brought down by children. In the summer of 1971, Alcala weaseled his way to a job at a summer camp in New Hampshire. Some campers happened to walk into a nearby post office and noticed a familiar face pinned to the bulletin board. There, on the FBI's most wanted list, was a photo of one of their counselors, John Berger. Only the guy's name wasn't John Berger on the FBI's notice. It was Rodney Alcala. Score one for stranger danger. Alcala was extradited back to Los Angeles to face charges for what he'd done to Tali Shapiro. The Shapiros, however, had since moved out of the country and didn't want Tali testifying at the trial for fear that it would be too traumatic, which meant the only thing Alcala was charged with was a plea deal for child molestation. The court gave him an indeterminate sentence of one year to life, and like always, Rodney Alcala was persuasive. If only all inmates could be like Alcala, they all said. He was a model prisoner, and he barely did three years. Only two months after his release, Alcala was caught smoking dope with a 13-year-old girl on the cliffs of Huntington Beach, the very same location he would later meet Robin Samso. He went back to jail and once again, bolstered by his charm and persuasiveness, was out in less than three years. It was the summer of 1977. Alcala was restless, too much of a known quantity in California. He laid on the persuasive charm real thick and got his parole officer to approve a vacation request to New York City. It was during that quote-unquote vacation that he murdered Ellen Hover. It was also around the time that Christine Ruth Thornton, 28 years old and six months pregnant, encountered Rodney Alcala somewhere between Mississippi and Wyoming and then vanished. Her remains were found five years later. Ellen Hover and Christine Thornton weren't necessarily the start of Rodney Alcala's killing spree, but they were far from the end of it. November 1977, Los Angeles. The body of a 19-year-old Jill Barcom, a transplant from New York, was found off of Franklin Canyon Road. She'd been sexually assaulted, bludgeoned, and strangled. Her face was unrecognizable. December 1977, Malibu. Window open, screen removed. Inside, Georgia Wickstead, 27 also sexually assaulted, strangled, and beaten to death. The blood was everywhere. June 1978, El Segundo, Charlotte Lamb, 32, found dead in a laundry room, raped and strangled with a shoelace. June 1979, Burbank, Jill Parento, 21, returned to her apartment after a Dodgers game where she was strangled to death. Also in June 1979, Huntington Beach, Robin Samso, just 12 years old, stolen by a convincing stranger in a car on the side of the road. Shades of Tali Shapiro from a decade earlier. It was during this three-year killing spree that, unbelievably, Rodney Alcala appeared as an eligible bachelor on the dating game. The network didn't perform background checks. Alcala got onto the show with his killer charm. For the record, one of the show's producers later admitted that Alcala made him uncomfortable when he auditioned, just as he did to bachelor number two, Jed Mills, in the green room. Not everyone played the dating game just for a date. Some of them did it just to be on TV. It fed their ego, 
It was the ultimate narcissistic power play. A serial killer so overwhelmingly arrogant to believe that not only could he continue to play a game of cat and mouse with the authorities, but he could do so while playing another game. And he could win it. This is your date, and I want to tell you something about him, Cheryl. He's a skydiver, so he's got a lot of nerve. He's into motorcycling, and he's also a fine photographer. Say hello to Rodney Alcala. Rodney Alcala won the dating game easily. He knew he would win. It was what he did. Just like he told Jed Mills in the green room, he always got his girl. One day it was Jill Barcom or Charlotte Lamb, and the next day it was Cheryl Bradshaw. He didn't give a shit about the tennis lessons they won, even though he pretended like he did when Jim Lang listed out the prizes. Alcala stood there with his hand around Cheryl's waist, that sociopathic grin on his face. Oh boy, tennis lessons, what a fucking gas. He cared even less about the trip to Magic Mountain. They wouldn't even make it that far. Alcala had it all planned out. He'd say sweet nothings to her, tell her how great she looked in that dress, tell her that her feathered hair reminded him of Farrah Fawcett. But she was sexier than Farrah Fawcett, of course she was, by a mile. He'd ask her to pose, just like that, ask her to angle her head a little more, smile wider, could he take her photograph? And that got him excited, even more excited when he could touch her, when he could put his hands around her, not an arm innocently draped across her midriff, more than that, his hands around her throat. He liked to clasp his fingers together behind her neck, his teeth sunk into her tender flesh, to watch the life just ooze out of her wide eyes. She would try to scream and it would send goosebumps up his arms and he'd squeeze tighter. And maybe something would snap, a bone or a tendon. Maybe she'd bleed. They're all different. If she passed out, he'd wait until she came to and he'd start it all over again. And then when she was gone, when the struggling and the screaming had stopped and she was lifeless, an empty shell, a drained vessel, he'd prop her up, pose her, and he'd snap more photos. But Rodney Alcala didn't get to take Cheryl Bradshaw's photo. He didn't even get a date. Cheryl Bradshaw picked up on the same bad vibes that both Jed Mills and the show's producer had caught. Shortly after the taping of her dating game episode, Cheryl Bradshaw called the show's producers and politely apologized. She could not go through with the date. Not now, not ever. She had no way of knowing then, but by trusting her gut and making that phone call, Cheryl Bradshaw saved her own life. Marianne Conley let the 25 caliber pistol drop back into the straw handbag on her lap. Her 12-year-old daughter, Robin Samso, was dead, but Marianne could sense she was in the courtroom with her. She couldn't explain it. It's just a feeling she had, a mother's intuition. She even heard Robin's voice. Robin told her not to do it. Don't kill him. It wouldn't bring Robin back. It would just destroy Marianne's life. Marianne's life, though, had pretty much already been destroyed back in June 1979 when Robin was brutally murdered by Rodney Alcala. But Marianne listened to her daughter's voice, and the pistol never emerged from her handbag. She locked the clasp and fought back tears and pain. She would let justice take its course. During the investigation into Robin Samso's murder, detectives discovered that Alcala rented a self-storage unit at a facility in Seattle. What they found inside broke the case wide open. Thousands of photographs of women and girls, jewelry, keepsakes, trophies. 
and a pair of earrings that Marianne Connolly said belonged to her daughter. In May of 1980, Rodney Alcala was convicted and sentenced to death for the murder of Robin Samso, and they sent him to San Quentin. But Rodney Alcala didn't sweat it too much. He knew that even with his days numbered on death row, he had the upper hand. He could see around the next corner. He always got his girl, and he was always one step ahead of the rest. Four years later, in 1984, the first in a series of extraordinary twists happened. Rodney Alcala appealed his sentence on the grounds that jurors had been improperly informed of his prior sex crimes. His death sentence was overturned. In 1986, seven years to the day of Robin Samso's disappearance, Alcala was tried for a second time. Once again, he was found guilty and once again, he was given the death penalty. And then in 2001, Alcala appealed his sentence yet again, this time on the grounds that his attorney had not put forth a strong enough effort. Incredibly, his death penalty was overturned for a second time. As the prosecution began to assemble its case for Alcala's third trial, they were able to utilize something that was not available to them 20 years earlier, DNA evidence. They analyzed the bounty from that self-storage unit in Seattle, and what they found went far beyond the murder of Robin Samso. Among all those photographs, jewelry, and keepsakes were DNA matches for Jill Barcombe, Georgia Wickstead, Charlotte Lamb, and Jill Parento. In 2010, Rodney Alcala's third trial began in Orange County. Only this time, he wasn't being tried for one murder. He was being tried for five. And Marianne Connolly was there for every minute of it. Only this time, she wasn't sitting in the audience debating whether or not to pull a pistol from her handbag and blow her daughter's killer away. She was sitting on the witness stand and Rodney Alcala was the one asking her the questions. Alcala had fired his court-appointed attorney so that he could represent himself. He had persuaded a stranger to pick him as her blind date on a nationally syndicated TV show while he was in the midst of a prolific killing spree. Surely, he could convince a jury that he didn't deserve the death penalty. Alcala was older now, too, 66, the same age as Marianne. His long, curly hair had grown longer in prison, grayer too. He wore a pair of glasses. Maybe he thought the glasses made him look smarter than he really was. They said his IQ was off the charts and Marianne didn't give a shit about IQ. She just wanted the cross-examination to stop. In what world was it okay for a grieving mother to be forced to answer the questions of the man who took her daughter's life? She wished she had that pistol now, man. She'd use it for real this time. She should have just finished the goddamn job back in 1980. Maybe she'd be in prison, but at least she wouldn't be sitting on the witness stand talking to the one person in the world she never wanted to talk to. And he just kept on talking, kept asking her questions, like he was enjoying it, enjoying watching her squirm, watching her get upset. He dragged the whole thing out. Rodney Alcala was getting off on the entire interaction, and Marianne Connolly simply couldn't take it anymore. Please stop. I've answered all your questions, she shouted at him. Please, I've been living this torture for 30 years. Rodney Alcala eventually stopped asking questions. He was so sure that he had argued his case persuasively. He was charming, conniving, intelligent. But just like Jed Mills and Cheryl Bradshaw on The Dating Game all those years ago, the judge and jury saw through Alcala's facade. They knew he had killed those women. The jury convicted Alcala on five counts of murder one, and the judge sentenced him to death. 
Two years later, in 2012, Alcala was extradited to New York to face charges for the 1971 murder of TWA flight attendant Cornelia Crilly and the 1977 murder of socialite Ellen Hover. He pled guilty, and New York gave him 25 years to life on top of his California conviction. And then, in 2016, prosecutors in Wyoming charged Alcala with the murder of Christine Ruth Thornton, the pregnant woman who had encountered him in 1978 and then disappeared. And those are just the cases with enough hard evidence to warrant convictions. Police believe that Alcala murdered not eight, but dozens of women over the years. Some say the body count is as high as 130 victims. The number of photographs of unidentified women found in his self-storage unit are in excess of 100. And that number was initially higher, but after the photos were made public in 2010, at least 20 women came forward to identify themselves and mercifully cross themselves off that list. The photos are chilling, even if the same dreadful fate didn't await all of the subjects. There's a weird, playful quality to many of them, not unlike the first 10 minutes of any campy horror film. You know, the forced cheesy dialogue before the blood splatters. Some are topless, others appear to be rocking out in front of the stereo at whatever Rodney is playing for them. The subjects range in ethnicity and to a revolting extent in age. Many of the women and girls are smiling, some self-consciously, some genuinely. Some don't seem to know they're being photographed out in the wild, and others have a look in their eyes as they sit in Alcala's home studio that you just can't help but interpret as, what are you going to do to me? It is simply impossible to know just how many others died at this fucking creep's hands. And I'll never have to answer for any of those murders either. In 2021, Rodney Alcala died of natural causes at a California hospital while awaiting execution. The families of his victims didn't get the satisfaction of watching the life slip from his eyes as the lethal injection was administered, just like he had watched the life drain from the eyes of every woman he killed. Perhaps he thought, in some sick and twisted way, that despite those handful of convictions, he had won. He had stayed one step ahead of everyone else and taken dozens if not hundreds of secrets to his grave. For mourners like Marianne Conley, though, there were no winners, and there was no peace. There was only a horrible story in which her daughter played a tragic role. A story that shouldn't be real. A story that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.